Hello, welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osband, here with my friend, Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachat Sukkah, daf Chaf, page 20. So I wanted to start off by this really interesting uh, kind of side nugget that appears on this daf, but is actually really important to understanding some of the personalities of who has shaped our Torah Shabal Peh, and specifically the Tosefta. The Gemara is in a rather lengthy discussion about these mats, big mats, large mats, mats for sleeping, mats for roofing, and sort of going back and forth about what exactly a chotzalot, what exactly chotzalots are. And then we finally get this discussion with Reish Lakish, where this comment with Reish Lakish, where Reish Lakish says the following, Reish Lakish So Reish Lakish is basically sort of, this means like is following his line of reasoning, which is said somewhere else. The Amar Reish Lakish for Reish Lakish says, "Hareini kaparat Rabbi Chia uvanav." So he says, "I am an atonement for Rabbi Chia and his sons." And what does he mean by this? That in the beginning, when Torah was forgotten from the Jewish people, Allah Ezra mibavavisada. So Ezra comes from Babel, right? So Ezra is, you know, one of the leaders who comes to the Shivat Zion, and he reestablishes the forgotten laws. Now, it's very important to remember that Ezra was always referred to as Ezra has so fair, right? Ezra is a writer. It's the first leader we see who's not a Navi, who's not a prophet, but is really immersed in law. Chazra v'nishtacha, right? Again, the laws are forgotten. Allah hilal habavli v'yisada, right? So again, this is very interesting. So again, somebody from Babel comes, and we talked about this story a little while ago, that Hillel is actually, was born in Babylonia, right? Is born in Babel. And Hillel comes there to Israel to learn Torah. And he also orders or reestablishes all of the forgotten Torah. Chazra v'nishtacha, right? Again, the Torah is forgotten again, right? And here we're talking about, um, and what happens? Alu Rabbi Chia v'anavi And Rabbi Chia comes, and Rabbi Chia again with his, he reestablishes them. And so now this ties into what the discussion is about, where he says that Rabbi Dosa and the Chachamim didn't have a machlokas about these machsalot of Usha. So I just wanted to do a little bit of a who's who on who Rabbi Chia is. In fact, there's a number of people who are named Rabbi Chia, but the Rabbi Chia here is sometimes referred to as Rabbi Chia Hagadol, um, who is the uh, transitional Amora, basically. He lives in Eretz Yisrael, in this transitional um, generation that gaps the Tanaitic and Amoraic periods. So he's really considered sort of like a first-generation Amora. He lives in Tiberia, and he's considered to be sort of the compiler or the redactor of the Tosefta. His full name is Rabbi Chia Bar Abba, but there's also another Amora, third-generation Amora, who's also Rabbi Chia Bar Abba. And the reason why he's also sort of a, um, a uh, transitional Amora is because his teacher is Rabbi Huda Hanasi. But the other thing that's important about Rabbi Chia is, is that, that this Rabbi Chia is also originally from Babel. Um, he can trace himself directly from, uh, from David HaMelech, but he's actually Babylonian. And so one of the themes here that's important in this passage is, is sort of this idea of Torah being forgotten and you have these three people, Ezra, 
have Hillel, and then you have Rabbi Chia, who's sort of Alu, they come up from Babel, and they are the ones who sort of reestablish Torah in Eretz Yisrael. So I think that's an important theme about why exactly that is, that even in Eretz Yisrael, Torah somehow gets forgotten and it takes the outsider, the Jew who's living in the diaspora, to come and to really restore Torah to wait to the way that it was way supposed it- to be. So, you know, so, Rabbi Chim is really this very important Amora who reestablishes Torah. The fact that he's compared to Ezra and Hillel lets us know how um, sort of, you know, how important um, he actually is. Um, and, uh, you know, this is just a very important sort of who's who. We see a lot of his activity around Halakha, also around Agadita as well. Um, and you will see his name very often. But again, it's sometimes confusing because are we talking about this Rabbi Chia or are we talking about other uh, Rabbi Chia's uh, as well? He's also very much associated with the act of giving charity. That was actually, we saw that in a Gemara in uh, Shabbos, um, Andav Kufnun Aleph. So you could go back and look at that there. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess that's really the who's who that I wanted to do today. Well, thank you for that. <clears throat> Excuse me. <coughs> My voice has gone hoarse. Um, I want to actually come back to the chutzalot, right? Because this has been quite a long topic. And I'm not even, I would not have expected that necessarily. Um, right, we've talked about the, how, how the mats can be, right? That's what we're talking about here. The mats that are made of something that is like karka. And where the question is, you know, will this mat, be rendered impure, and if so, then it cannot be used for schach, and if it is not going to be rendered impure, then it can be used for schach. So, the Gemara at the end of, on the on Ahmed Bet, and, and with Ahmed Bet, we conclude this topic and also this parak. Um, we say, Amar Mar, kol ha-chotzalot mitamin So you say, any of the chotzalot can become ritually impure with the impurity from a dead body. Divrei Rebbe Dosa. So the the Gemara says one second. Rabbi Dosa already should have been agreeing that. Well, let's take it a step back, right? If this is the case that a mat can be can, can become tamimait, then it's considered a vessel, right? Then it means it's susceptible to any ritual impurity, at least theoretically, and you can't use it for a sukkah. So then the question is. We know this from the Breitha that we already discussed. And we would think that Rabbi Dosa would agree with this because, namely, with a statement that we'd already seen, in the, we saw it in the name of Rabbi Yossi, right? This question of all mats being a problem or a potential problem, right? And then, so isn't this going to be a problem? Isn't this a contradiction that that which could become ritually impure, stating it here as if it's a chiddush, when we already know this, seems a little bit odd. So the Gemara says, Lokasha. It's not an issue because ha, meaning going back to the Mishnah, where we had two different possibilities, namely the possibility that the mat could indeed become impure, depending on its purpose, depending on its plan for use, or that it would never become impure because it's designed to be schach. So the Gemara says, Lokasha, ha, in the Mishnah, the itle gedanpa. A gedanpa, it turns out, is an upturned edge. Right where the mat itself does not lie entirely flat, but it has some kind of like swoop upwards. And ha, you're in the brighter, the late like gadampa, if it does not have an upturned edge, 
then it is not a vessel. It can't hold anything, I guess is the point, and it's never going to be susceptible to impurity. So then the Gemara asks, Meitzvei, Chotzalot shall sha'am, v'shal gemi, v'shal sak, v'shal sfira. What about the content? What if? What about the material from which this this mat is made? So the first question is papyrus, and the second one is bulrushes, and sak is sackcloth, right? What if it's made from horse hair or perhaps goat hair, right? Any of these materials, at least theoretically, the weaving of them could become ritually impure. You know, if it were come in contact with a dead body, but it's not going to become ritual impure with other impurities. Let's say the impurity. So it says, mm-hmm. The chachamim say, well, not only will it become impure from a tamei mate, but even with the impurity that could happen by walking, by treading on top of this mat, well, thus too, these mats could become impure. So. If, I mean, I find, maybe you're Dana, maybe you won't agree with me here, but I find all of this a little bit head spinning because the question of the mat, whether it can become pure or impure, seems very clear from the Mishnah. And yet, when we get into the Gemara, there's a lot of debate about what, not only what kind of mat, not only the intent that we'd already discussed, but it seems that there's a machloket throughout, right? Whether, it, you know, just the basic assumption over whether this is uh, an issue or not an issue at all. Once you start talking about ritual impurity, and we're going to divide it up into the different kinds of ritual impurity, and sometimes yes and sometimes no, and I feel like, wait, aren't we just talking about a mat? But the answer is, as you know, as is the Gemara's won't, we're going to break it down even more carefully. So, Marzovle are sacks. Right, they so then you'd have a mat that would be made out of these the sack, um, shalsha'am, which is of papyrus, shalgami, chazu, kinta de pere. So, again, here we've got it's made of papyrus or bulrushes. You could use it to make a what is it? Kinta de pere means a fruit basket, right? That it's, it's stiff enough, I guess, that you could use it for a basket or shalsak, shalsfira, chazu, legluke, betsene. So then we've got the ones that are made out of sackcloth or horsehair, and they could be used to make smaller sacks, right? Meaning they're they're a much more um, malleable material. I don't mean malleable. They bend more easily if it's fabric, right? Um, if we're talking about real, you know, actual mats with no upturned edges, bishlama shall sack, bishal sphira, chazul afarse vata. So all of this is really about the realia of what they would know, right? If they are using some kind of um, bags, right? Some kind of sacks that then could be made of these different materials if they would break them down or cut them up to make them into mats. But then you could assume that they still might have an upturned edge. However, if you're talking about actual mats that are just flat, that don't have upturned edges, then they then the question is you would only use it to lie down on and that brings us back to the mishnah if you're lying down on it right if that is your intent then you can't use it for schach and then the you know it goes back to the 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 substance of which it's made and at the end of the day the gemara says really you they're worried that maybe these things aren't used for anything and the gemara says they're used to 
they're fit to use them as the covers for vats of ale. So if we're going to talk about realia, meaning when we're specifically talking about what could these things possibly be used for, and then you want to say, well, could you repurpose that to be your schach and a sukkah? Um, the Gemara is really, I would say, you know, talking about the day-to-day things that we haven't said this in a while, but, you know, that we don't necessarily know much about in terms of what they were really using or why they might really have needed it. And then here the Gemara kind of reveals all this to us quite a bit. Okay, I want to get to the very last bit of this Breitah. No, I'm sorry, of this Gemara, of this of this section of the Perak. It's the section of the Daf, which is the end of the Perak. Um, our, we're going to continue, please God, with the new mission, the new Perak, with the new Mishnah tomorrow, even though it's on this Daf. Um, because we want to just close it off here today. Tanya, I'm a Rebbe Fananya. Lugola. So this is a nice piece of narrative. Rebbe Fananya says that he went, he went in exile to Babylonia. Matsati Zakenachad. He found one of the elders. Uh, he said to him, Vamarli, sorry, Bavudya, Okishabati etel Rebbe Yehoshua, Ache Abba Hoda Lidvarat. So. In Babylonia, he said, you can use, you can roof your sukkah, you can use for, for schach, you can use a mat. That was the practice in Babylonia. It was said unequivocally. He returns to Eretz Israel. He comes to Rabbi Yoshua ben Hanania, who happens to be his uncle, and he, meaning, that's right, because this is Achi Abba, um, his, the brother of his, of his father, and he said, yes, that's true. You can use a mat for your sukkah. I'm Rav Chista. And Rav Chista then comes, you know, then comes and, ca- and comments and makes the clarification. Specifically, when we don't have an upturned edge, don't think that everything we've just discussed is null and void. You know, even they were, they were talking about mats, they're talking about specifically the kinds of mats that do not have an upturned edge that you have in mind to use for schach. Amar Ula. Hani Budjata Divne Machoza. So the mats of the people who lived in Machoza, Il Malay Kirshalahan, Mesakhin Bahu. If they didn't have this wall, what's this wall? Namely, an upturned edge. Then you would be able to use them for schach. Tani Namihachi Mesakhin Bavudya, Veim Yeshlahan Kir, Ain Mesakhin Bahan. So Ula gives us a whole other version of the what amounts to the same story, namely the mats in Machoza all had an upturned edge, but if they didn't have an upturned edge, then they could have been used for schach, and so the, and that wouldn't have been a concern. So at the end of the day, and quite literally at the end of the parak, the conclusion is you can use mats for your sukkah as long as you're not using them for something else that could be makabal tumah, and as long as they don't have an upturned edge, which invalidates them as mats, right? Because then they have there's something, you know, an additional identity, namely they have this this edge, this wall that puts them in the category of the capacity to be a clee, some kind of vessel, some kind of utensil, and then that doesn't work. But otherwise, but otherwise, your mats are going to be fine for schach, assuming all of the conditions are met. And now we can say just briefly, Hadran Alach, sukkah, the parak that we are in. Exciting that we finished the uh, first parak here. Peric for me sort of ended like not on a bang. I mean, this whole thing with the mats, I, it, it just was like a very, they spent a lot of time discussing it. 
And I understand why a little bit, because I think it is confusing, right? Like we spent a lot of time talking about things having to be made with intention for sukkah. And now we're talking about a category of something that whether it could be used for schach, it it depends by which intention it was made, because that will affect whether or not it can be makabal tumor or not be makabal tumor. But I was surprised by how long they chose to discuss it. Yeah, I, I, a little bit, because I don't know. It seemed like, yes, I, I mean, I'm just repeating it. I'm trying to think if I have something new to say about why I'm surprised that they were discussing it. You know, the, the different bits that get repeated. It seemed like some of it was repetitive or checking into that, you know, more different other people said the same thing. So we always want to know what everybody has to say. And yet this seemed to be, I don't know. I, it's not, I don't want to say that it's belaboring the point. I feel like maybe if we had the time to sit on it slower, this is always a good excuse. If we weren't rushing through at the pace of Dafyomi, then maybe we would understand by that delving why the mats become so critical. Yeah, I, I guess so. But I but I wonder if it's sort of a, it brings together the particular case of the mats, you know, this idea of intention, even before you even thought about using it for schach, which is very interesting. So, right, at the beginning, I thought it was very interesting. And I'll tell you something else. At the end here, this this, this distinction between Bavel and Eretz Yisrael, I think is also very dis- interesting, right? This idea that, yes, they were using mats. And yes, in Machosa, even in Machosa, they also would have been using mats. But somehow their mats have this, this upturn, right? And then they bring that back to Eretz Yisrael. That I thought was interesting. Right. Well, there seems to be sort of an additional theme here about some differences between, uh, you know, the Torah of Babel and it being brought or some of the customs of Babel being brought, brought to Eretz Yisrael. So we see that with that piece by Rish Lakish. We also see that with the maps as well. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us and review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.